It's impossible to spend any time in an intensive care unit without being permanently changed. Those words were written by author, speaker, and activist Joy Bennett about the upcoming book she co-authored with her husband Scott called Holding On While Letting Go. The story you're about to listen to is one no parent can imagine being part of. What happened to Joy and her husband Scott and their beautiful family of four was the beginning of Joy's spiritual transformation. It's the story of a woman who shifted from intellectual know-it-all to questioner, praying the healing of her unbelief. I'm Joy Bennett, and this is a lesson in faith. What is your earliest memory of being creative? I think it was in second grade. I had a teacher who was a huge writing advocate. She really wanted us students to explore writing. And she had each of us create a book. So we we wrote a story, we illustrated it, and then we bound it, which was just, I, I, I obviously never forgot it. And it inspired me to write my own stories. I had a little purple spiral bound notebook that I was writing stories in, um, and in second grade. And I, so I think it was, it was, uh, clear early on that writing was going to be one of my things. Divine guidance. Yes. <laughs> and divine interception right at the beginning. So you're, you are a writer. Tell me a little bit about the work that you do. It comes out in a lot of different ways, both personal and professional. So I, in college, discovered that there was this degree I could get in which I could actually earn a decent living as a writer. <laughs> I had I had thought that the only living you could make was if you made it big in a with a novel. And it's like, well, that's not realistic. I don't think, I don't think I'm necessarily going to be the next great American author and I don't want to be a starving artist. And so I was exploring other possibilities and I got an email because I was on an undeclared major. And so I got an email from a writing professor partway through my freshman year that she always sent out every year to the undeclared majors and said, Hey, there's this program that I lead called technical writing. Mm. And you you learn how to write for business, write for engineers, write instructions and guides that people need to use technical things. And I was like, oh, I'm going to find out more about this. And so I met with her and signed on for that major immediately. It has been the foundation of everything I've done ever since because we learned how to think about learning something with zero understanding to, to start with. So, you know, we had this initial class where we had to write instructions to make a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> and she followed our instructions literally and where there was peanut butter everywhere because we <laughs> forgot steps. Like you need to open the bag and pull the bread out. You need to unscrew the lid. You need a spreading utensil, you know? So like we when we think about how to do something, we skip a lot of steps because there's a lot of understood information. And 
And so we learned to step back and look at every single little thing. So I, I, I tell people like, you need to click this in the upper left corner of your screen, like super <laughs> specific and precise. And learning to do that has served us well in all of our life. Uh, our oldest daughter was born with congenital heart defects. I knew nothing about medicine. I'm a word person. I am right-brained all the way. We ended up in the hospital for weeks in intensive care, and there was a whole new vocabulary. And when we brought her home, she was on 25 different doses of medication in a 24-hour period. She wow. was uh, receiving feeding through a tube that we had to learn how to do. And we actually used... Our, my husband also has a technical writing degree. That's how we met. Mm. Uh, and so we actually created ourselves charts and instructions so that we could break down everything and track it as non-medical people and make sure we took care of her well. So you mentioned your daughter and you also have a book that you've been writing about what happened with her. Do you want to start at the beginning of that story? And, and because I, I don't know anything about it. So my husband and I got married in 1998. So actually this weekend, we celebrate 22 years. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And I got pregnant uh, about a year in, and we had our first baby in February of 2000. And we did not know that anything was wrong. We had ultrasounds and there were, I remember now that there was one image that the technician tried to get that she couldn't. And she was like, that's not a, that's not a big deal. Usually that's a hard picture to get. It doesn't really mean anything. And I was like, okay, I'm sure it's fine. And we delivered, had a, you know, pretty, pretty good flawless birth experience uh, for considering childbirth is hard. And the doctor listened to her and asked me if I could page a nurse to come in and bring another stethoscope. And I was like, that's odd. Um, and then he asked someone else if he could use theirs. So he actually listened to her heart with three different stethoscopes mm -hmm. during his exam. And he, he stopped and looked at us and said, I, I believe that your daughter has a heart defect. Mm -hmm. And I would like to get, you know, some tests, some images done, and you're going to need to go down to children's and see the cardiology team down there. And it was very confusing at the time because some of the nurses could hear a heart murmur, some of them couldn't. And I was a skeptic and just thought, oh, he's trying to run up our hospital bill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, denial is a beautiful thing. We actually ended up taking her home for a day and a half because the test results, they didn't come back before we were discharged. And so we brought Ellie home and I struggled to nurse her and it just felt, I knew it was hard. I knew newborns were difficult, but I was like, I just feel like she's not eating enough. We had a home visit from a nurse who weighed her and said, she's lost too much weight. Like there's a certain amount we expect newborns to lose. She's lost past the safe amount. And she was, she was getting pretty jaundiced and She's like, you need to take her to see a doctor today. And, and I'm so thankful for her. I'm glad she was able to come that day and tell us, you've got to go. You need to get a doctor's eyes on her now. I'm still in denial thinking I, it's not going to be that bad. Lots, babies are born with heart defects all the time. Uh, but then when we got to children's, they started to take 
get more images, more x-rays. And they sent us to go eat while they did an echo, which is an ultrasound of the heart. And we came back an hour later and they were still trying to figure out what went where. Like the, her anatomy was so not normal that they were still trying to understand it. She, she was admitted to the ICU that night and we drove home with an empty car seat because uh, they told us this is going to be a long haul and you need to sleep. You need to take care of yourselves. This kind of thing can be really rough on relationships. Make sure you get help if you start to struggle. Like, like we, we got a, we got a pretty heavy, hard diagnosis that night. And they said, you can call us anytime to see how she's doing. And I called in the morning and the nurse was like, she's doing fine. Uh, the doctors would like to talk to you as soon as you get here. And I didn't know that there was anything to that. I just, it just sounded pretty normal to me. So we kind of put her, packed her stuff up and we were attending a church at the time. And then they all knew, like we had called them the night before saying, this is happening. This is what we're finding out. And so we called to say, hey, here's what they told us this morning. We're heading down to the hospital. And somehow our pastor heard in that, that there was more news coming. Right. And he immediately started heading down too. So we got to the hospital and they wouldn't let us go back to see her immediately. They, they were like, the doctors need to talk to you first. And they, they pulled us into a side room and said, this morning, your daughter's heart stopped and we did CPR, but we don't know how effective that CPR was because she has a very leaky heart valve. So her heart wasn't efficient, wasn't pumping efficiently in the first place. And then chest compressions aren't efficient either. So we don't know how well, we don't, we don't know if, if her brain is injured, we know that her whole body was deprived of oxygen for an extended period of time. Her organs have been injured by this. So they said, you know, we, we know she's going to need surgery. She has to get past this to be strong enough to go through surgery because that's just as hard on a little baby's body as this is. And basically, I remember him saying, I wish I could say, but the good news is, but I can't. So they never said outright, we don't think she's going to make it, but they were saying that in all of the things that they were telling us about how, how bad the situation was. I remember us sitting there thinking, do we, do we go back and see her? I wanted to go. I didn't want her to be alone, surrounded by strangers. My husband didn't want to have memories of her all hooked up and in a really bad place. He wanted to remember her healthy and I understood that, but I was like, I want to go. So our pastor had arrived in the middle of that conversation and he was like, I'll go back and, and then I'll come and tell you what to expect. And then you can decide from there. So she was on a ventilator and her whole body was just kind of trembling. And she had lines all over the place, surrounded by IV poles with medications. And because she had jaundice as well, they had uh, ultraviolet light on her because apparently that helps your body process bilirubin. Um, and jaundice is a buildup of bilirubin in your system. So she had all these things. And I just, I, I, I remember thinking, I don't know if we're going to bring her home. 
And it was just a, a moment by moment thing for a long time. She she kept on going. Like every day she just hung in there and she kept hanging on. And we made it to the point where they said, we believe she's strong enough that we can do surgery. And it was extensive surgery. And they said, if we, if we don't operate, she won't live. Her body can't, she can't function this way. And we have to do something within six weeks. So she had surgery when she was three weeks old and it was a 12 hour process and they didn't fix everything. They didn't replace the valve. They, they tried to fix everything else. It was touch and go for several days after the surgery, but she just kept on hanging in there. Um, and we actually brought her home six weeks after she was born. And, and then we were in and out for probably six months. We'd get her home. We'd be able to stay for a week or two and then she'd get sick or something would happen and we'd need to bring her back. At six months, she had the valve replaced yeah. and then things got steadily better for a while. Then we started to grapple with um, brain injury because she had suffered a, a lack of oxygen injury that predisposed her to seizures. And you know we call it cerebral palsy. It had damaged the signals that go from your brain to your muscles. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of got the signals would get scrambled. And so she couldn't just move her hand from, you know, her side up to her face, like to feed herself. It was like her, her arms literally kind of waved around and, and she couldn't, she couldn't make anything happen in a direct way like we do. So while her start was really focused on this heart condition, her day-to-day -day life, once we got her past those initial surgeries really revolved around the brain and injury. It even is, I mean, incredible to believe that she got beyond all of that with her heart, and yet yeah. here she is, still, still going. Yeah, in a, in a body that wouldn't cooperate with her, you know, she she showed as we we got her into special education. She had occupational, physical, and speech therapists her whole life. And there's a special program that Children's Hospital has to teach kids who are nonverbal because she, she even had oral motor skill delays, like, like all of her muscles, anything that was voluntary, she had, had trouble right. controlling. Yeah. Um, but working with those specialists, we were able to see that she had cognitive function and she, they, she had a, a really great sense of humor. And she would laugh and she, we, we were able to create a, a, a communication device. And it was like a precursor to the iPad where we could set up buttons on a screen that would sit, speak, speak things out loud. And we set up like knock, knock jokes for her to tell. <laughs> and she would tell them over and over again and just crack up. Oh. And she, there was one day, so we have, we have three other children who are younger. And there was a day where Ellie had to go to school and I was planning to take the younger kids to the zoo. But I didn't want to tell Ellie I was taking them to the zoo because I didn't want her to miss to feel like she was missing out. But I was kind of indirectly trying to get the others ready. It was like, yes, put your shoes on. We're going to get some sunscreen. But I didn't say anything. And she found on her screen uh, a set of animals that you can see at the zoo and started talking about all the animals at the zoo. And I was like, you smarty pants. <laughs> you figured it out. <laughs> and then um, she started to learn when she was eight, we were working with therapists to try to help her learn how to drive a power wheelchair so she could have a little bit more independence. 
And they they would bring her out into these long hallways in the hospital. <laughs> Multiple times, she would take her chair and drive it straight into the boys' bathroom, <laughs> cracking up every time. She knew it was the boys' bathroom, not the girls' bathroom, and she kept going back in there anyway. <laughs> Like, well, she is her mother's daughter. <laughs> when she was eight and a half, and we had been struggling to manage seizures. So she had these infantile seizures when she was a baby, and we had been able to wean her off seizure meds around the age of two. Um, and she was off them for a couple of years. And then she had a seizure uh, when she was four, I think, and when we had to go back on them. And seizure meds messed her up so much. It, it made it impossible for her to sleep through the night. Sometimes she would get upset for a reason we couldn't figure out. We didn't know if she was in pain, but I later learned that one of the medications we were trying with her can actually cause like rage uh-huh. in the people who take it. But we'd been able to control them for a while. And, and around seven and a half, eight, she started to have seizures again. And the medication wasn't controlling them anymore. And so we think, and she often would have seizures in her sleep. Mm. It was really strange. So the day she died, we went in to get her up in the morning and she has gone. And we think circumstantially that she probably had a seizure that depressed her ability to breathe. And the, you know, the doctors at the hospital told us, you know, you can have an autopsy if you want. But I knew from all of the EEGs that we'd had done that Unless a person is having a seizure yeah. right then, it's really hard to see because, and I was like, so she's, she's gone. Like there's no brain activity. Can you tell if that's what it is? And he said, no, we could probably see some things that would indicate maybe that that's what happened. But he said, sometimes you learn things you didn't want to know. And it was a shock because we were not expecting it at all. And we had, we had really thought that because of all of the health situations and conditions that she had, that it, we thought that one day she would get sick and she wouldn't get better and that we would have to make a hard decision in the hospital about discontinuing care. And we, we had had conversations about how will we make those decisions because we both agreed just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, but she died peacefully at home in her bed, which is better for her. Definitely really hard for us. I don't even think that what, so forgive me in this moment because I don't even think any words could like convey, I'm sorry, I was getting weepy, convey like the depth of sadness. What I will ask though is because when I met you and I was taken aback actually when I realized later this story had happened to you because you are the embodiment of your name, Joy. You really are. And I think that some of us where the things, the hard things that happen to us on us and they, (laughs) uh, we lead with them, they transform us as they're meant to. I believe our souls are meant to be transformed by the experiences we have, good and bad. But I wonder how you managed to continue you have three other children how you managed to continue and how you managed to embody joy from this moment forward 
Well, you mentioned the universe or, you know, spirituality. And I really believe that my faith has been a huge support. But it was it was a a very hard process. I was definitely not joyful for a while. I I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian family and I spent some time in religious circles that didn't believe that mental illness was an actual illness. And so the idea of getting counseling and considering some kind of medication to help was like not even something that I would consider for a number of years. So I just kind of gutted it out. And I don't remember a lot uh, from those years with her when she was young because we didn't sleep much. And sleep deprivation is torturous. <laughs> and and it, it definitely messed with my memory. After she died, the only thing that got me out of bed was my other kids. I would have stayed in bed for weeks, maybe months otherwise. They needed me, and I'm very thankful that they were there. But those were really hard months, and I got very angry. I was angry about a lot of things, and it came out with my kids. And I think that's probably the hardest thing to look back on is just the way that I I wasn't taking care of myself and it was coming out, it was leaking out of me everywhere. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, my my oldest son actually drew a picture of me yelling at the youngest and it was like, mommy, you shouldn't do that. Like kind of wrote me this message on this piece of paper that I still have. And I was like, you're completely right. And I am going to have to get some help. Like, this is not how I want to be. This is not fair to you. It's all about me and not about you, you know? And so somewhere along the way, and I don't remember if someone said this to me or if I read it because I dove into books. I'm a reader as well as a writer. And I tried to find as many books as I can about grieving the loss of a child and like, how do you go? How do you keep going? And anyway, this analogy really was helpful to me. It said that, you know, when we break a bone, we wrap it and immobilize it in a cast to allow it to heal and regain strength. And then you take the cast off and, and hopefully you, your, your functions back and medication can be like that, especially antidepressants. It can be that cast to hold you while you heal and while you regain strength. And sometimes you can walk away and you don't need it anymore after a period of time. And sometimes you still need support. That mental picture gave me permission, I guess, to say, yeah, I think I need something. I need some something to hold me together while I work through my grief. And I work through all the questions that this raised for me about the faith that I had believed as from, from childhood and how could this happen? You know, I've tried to be the kind of person that I believe I'm supposed to be, you know, what did I do something wrong? You know, there's all these questions, existential questions, essentially that, that come up when life throws you a curveball like this. You, you've written about it now to help other families go through a loss like this. So I think so many creatives take are able to take their pain and transform it 
for good. So can you talk about what is written or what you've written to support people? My, my story is partially about Ellie. We talk about, you know, her, her birth, her life, her death and what happened after. But what we discovered in the writing, I, I realized like I would write something and then I would think there's another layer underneath this. And then there was another layer under that. And so I ended up discovering that it was about what she taught us and how she helped me and Scott, my husband, be better people. She gave us perspective on what's important and what isn't. We, When she was born and we learned about all of the things that she needed, it basically completely wiped our life slate clean. And we only could put onto it what was truly important. And for a long time, it was just taking care of her. And then eventually we were able to add some things in again. And I remember I would, I'd, I'd walk down, you know, hallway in school or pass other parents at a park or something and overhear snippets of conversation and, and think there's so much energy being spent on things that don't matter in the long run. And I think that Ellie just gave us this crystal clear way of seeing that, like, I only have so much time. I only have so much energy. What, where do I want that to go? What do I want to do with that? And my people are my highest priority and my community and my work. And it's just not worth getting upset about most everything else. (laughs) And that, that clarity, I don't know. I suppose I could have gotten it slowly over time, but she, she gave it to me early in my life. And, and she introduced me to a whole part of the world, a whole, a whole segment of society, I guess, the people who struggle with either injuries or illnesses or birth defects for whom life just is a series of hard things and it doesn't discriminate, you know, health, health and accidents and all that, that it doesn't discriminate. So the hospital is like a true cross section of your community. And, and it just like blew apart a lot of my preconceived notions about people and life. And it allowed me to see how, how sheltered that I had been. And it just expanded my, it just expanded my world exponentially. I ended up working part-time at Children's for about five mm-hmm. years and met all kinds of families and all kinds of health professionals. And this may sound really silly, but it was true. I thought my life experience was everybody's life experience. <laughs> and that sounds so silly, but I did. And then as I would have conversations and listen to other people's stories and hear from healthcare professionals, the kinds of situations that they got called into. It's like, oh, wow, there are so many different life experiences that I have no clue about. And that just understanding that has, has been huge for 
thinking about, you know, what do I want to do now? How do I want to function in my community? What's our family? What are our family values? What's important to us? And what do I want to pass along to my children? How do I take this experience and this perspective that Ellie gave me and share it? So the book is about a lot of things like that. It's just kind of wrapped around Ellie's story. So many people, once something bad happens to them, cannot move past that. And yet you are still, obviously through the lessons you learned from her, very much for the world and yeah. for shaping the, you know, I think I could, now we're, we're on video, but I could see the way that knowledge that your story is not everybody else's story, that there are so many others, has I could see how that influenced you and you ran for office <laughs> last year because, well, you can tell me why, but I, I do think as I watched your campaign unfold on your Facebook page, I noticed that you were very involved in making sure that people knew that there were other stories to be told. So tell me why you ran yeah. and then what happened. The why question is, is kind of hard to answer. So I'm in, in the U.S. I'm in a Midwestern state that was that's considered a swing state when it comes to national elections. And I grew up, you know, conservative, anti-abortion, all those things. And as I as my perspective broadened and as I learned more about the circumstances that many people are in and live from and how my, my experience is just one of many, I, I just, I started to see that our, one of the strengths that we have in our country is all of those different stories. And I can only see from my vantage point and so I have these huge blind spots of things that I've I've never been in that situation. I've I I had a family who stayed together. So, you know, like I have a very unique view. And it is one of thousands. And if I see that as a strength that other people can see things differently, or other people can see things that I had no idea were even there. And if we listen to each other, then we both see more and we could build a society that serves and supports all of us. And I, I don't know. I think one of the things that is wired into me is this like ability to see what could be and then the drive to make it happen. <laughs> so, so when I encounter people who are like, well, that's just how it is. I'm like, no, <laughs> it doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> like we could do something about this. Don't just sit back and resign yourself. You know, like that's just like the antithesis of me. I think what's interesting is, as again, that joy of discovery that other people have different perspectives. And wouldn't it be amazing if we let right. them all live together? I, I know it makes total sense to me, but I know some people are probably saying, 
not listening to this podcast, but there's a maybe they right? will. Like, why would we do that? Why can't you just think like me? Because I wasn't born. I'm not. Flowers look a million different ways, right? Exactly, and I think you know, as in what I got to do at Children's Hospital was I got to represent and advocate for parents and families within the system, and in order to do that, I had to understand and and represent many different family and patient situations and then try to basically in a way I was a translator right. to to healthcare providers and administrators and researchers who who come in with their angle you know I am a cardiologist and I treat hearts or I'm a researcher and I am studying the genetics of heart conditions, or I'm an administrator trying to make my clinic run efficiently. Each of those people have different things that are really important to them. And each of those people have a different idea of how to do things the best way. And they don't know what it's like to come through the system as a parent, as a patient and experience it from that side of the table or the bed or whatever you want, you know? And being able to sit down and for me to be able to hear the kind of constraints they're working with and the, the goals that they have and the challenges that they're facing and then bring ours and say, this is how it is for us and come together to problem solve, not to just have a vent session and then walk away like, well, <laughs> it is what it but is. This is what you took into, this is what you took into the political arena as well. This is your desire. This is. Yeah. Yes. And I got, and I, so I got to practice it in this microcosm that was a cross section of the community. And I got to see how, when we come together and we work together to problem solve and say, okay, taking into account the things that you've said and the things that we have, how can we make this work for all of us? That perspective, I talked about it a lot when I was campaigning, because I was like, our community, the, the city that I live in has become very diverse we have some very large corporations who have recruited and brought people from across the country and around the world. And they live here because we have a, a really good school district and because we're a really lovely community to be in. But now we have all of these new life experiences and families living here together side by side. And for our community to truly be strong and our, for our community to really be an incredible place for anyone no matter where they're from, we have to listen to each other's stories. And we need to come together and say, how can we make this better for all of us? Well, yes, we believe that. So let me let me ask you, because running for office requires that you be visible, right? Requires that you yes. allow all areas of your life to be visible and that some people might even seek out things that you've chosen to remain Hidden. So what was the increased visibility like for you? Well, it was scary. <laughs> There's, it's, you kind of feel like you're at the top of a roller coaster hill about ready to go down. But I've, I've always had a, an instinct to be transparent. And sometimes um, overly so. 
I had I wrote a blog for many years well, when Ellie was young and and through losing her and through questioning everything I believed about my faith and about why we're here. And I wrote it all out and it was just like all out on the table. And I've learned since that you can you can have you don't ne- you can't necessarily trust everyone with right. all of that. <laughs> but at the same time, I also really believe that being a human being and being willing to share mistakes and what I've learned through those and acknowledge those things is so much more relatable. I find there's a real freedom in it, quite frankly, because if, if you don't hide yes. and you're not ashamed of it, when somebody comes at you with something, it's like, oh yeah, well, I already know that. <laughs> right. And, and here's, here, let's talk about it. Let's talk well, about it. Like I'm not, not. It's it. none of your business. If you come at me with it, that's, right. that's fine. That's your, but what you think about me is just that what you think. Exactly. Yeah. There's so, so on the one hand, I kind of felt like, well, there's, <laughs> I've put it all out there already. Go find my blog. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. There was just some, there's something in me that was like, I know not everyone is willing to do this. And I don't know why I am, (laughs) but I am, I'm willing to do this. And we need good people. We need people who can see value in other perspectives. We need people who are willing to be human to try something and then go, well, that was a miserable failure. How can we do this better next time? Yeah. Women, and I women, don't see well, that women in are shy, right? This is the time. I mean, what I'm so impressed by is most women, I shouldn't say, I don't like to generalize, but there are statistics that show that women like to get it right. Women perf- want yeah. to feel like they are 100% perfectly schooled in something before they venture out to risk. And as writers, we know that it's it's about every single draft, right? It's never perfect yes. the first time. So what was scary? You said you were a little bit scared. So what was scary about it? It's scary to put yourself out there. And as a public figure, people can say things about you. And you don't, as an individual person, when you say, I'm going to put myself out there, there's less I have less rights to privacy, I guess, and people can say more things about a public person. Now, I did not win my race. I am still a private citizen, and so I still have those rights. I haven't given them away. But knowing that I was I was asking to be placed in this position, it's it it's uh I knew that I was opening myself up to the kind of criticism and attacks that I have seen happening across the country and there, there certainly was a part of me that's like, do I really want to do that? Can I withstand that? How would I, how will I handle it? And um, the other piece was asking for support. Uh, that was hard at first, but it has been such a good experience to do it. It's helped me in my business. It's just given me a lot more inner strength, I think, to, to say, I, this is what I need and I'm going to specify it and I'm going to ask you for it. What's the worst thing that can happen? You say, no, that's okay. <laughs> so it, it, I grew and I grew this strength that I didn't know I had by pushing, pushing myself into doing un- uncomfortable things. People ask me questions about how things work all the time. And 
Many people are asking if I will run again. I, I will at some point run again. I don't know when that clarity that I mentioned earlier about what's really important to me. I have one of the things that I've learned this year that's somewhat unrelated to politics is I have teens in my home. They're 13, 15, and 18, and they need me as much as they did when they were toddlers, just in a different way. And that's my highest priority. And so it may not be a fit for me to run again. The next election for a council will be in 21. And I don't know if I'll be in a place where I can do that and still be present for my kids, especially. I'll have to decide that closer to the time. But I will still be involved in some way. And I do expect to run at some point. Do you think that women lead differently? And are you comfortable with the idea of feminine leadership? I think women have strengths that haven't been valued, celebrated, and cultivated in the past. I think that we tend to think more holistically. You know, there's a, I don't like to generalize either, but I know that in general, men are much more able to compartmentalize things. And, and look at a discrete topic or issue or something and not think about all of the ways that it interconnects with other things. Whereas women's approach in, to thinking generally is much more of an interconnected. How, how does this fit into the larger picture? And I think that that is essential when we're talking about community and all of us living together in this physical place um, building systems that support everyone. We have to think about the interconnection. We have to think holistically. Um, and I think if we want to call it feminine leadership, I think that's fine. Although I do think, you know, not every woman thinks that way and not every man doesn't. And so maybe there's another label we can use, but I do think that it, in general, this, this, more holistic, interconnected way of seeing things and working through things is hasn't been valued as much as I think it should be. And that's something that we can bring. And I think especially for our communities and especially for uh, how polarized we are now, that is what we need if we're going to survive. complete the sentence. My wish for every other woman is. My wish for every other woman is to be strong inside, strong enough to speak your truth, to stand for what you believe, to take action, even when there is a cost. And to put yourself in a place where you know you'll be criticized, but be, have such strength and conviction that about what you're saying and doing and standing up for that it's okay, that you can take it. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead.
Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. You can join our community at Facebook forward slash Voice Lessons Podcast to speak with me live after every episode is posted. And if you have a question or comment or want to suggest a guest, you can do it there. Or if you're on Instagram, tag us at Voice Lessons Podcast and use the hashtag LessonUp. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com. Oh.